News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We want to share with you the story and interview of a pretty remarkable person this morning. Our CKNW contributor, John Jang, managed to talk to Helen Watson because Helen knew what to do when the whole COVID-19 pandemic began. How did she know? Oh, because she lived through the Spanish flu. Yeah, Helen is 105 years old. She has some great advice for us on how to navigate these uncertain times. Helen Watson is a remarkable person and perhaps one of the only Canadians who can now say that they have lived through two global pandemics. And her tip for you today is quite simple. Don't waste time. Just keep busy. I kept busy all the time. And do the best you can. While most of us call COVID-19 an unprecedented event, Truthfully, that statement isn't factually correct for Helen, who, back in 1918, was just a toddler during the Spanish flu. And while she doesn't remember everything from that time, she does recall that it had a direct impact on her parents, and especially her father. Um, I was three years old, and my my, uh, dad got deaf from that. And, um, yeah... Then they moved to Kelowna, and then uh, from Kelowna, my dad uh, walked to Vernon to try and get, get a job. But it's the experiences she went through when she was a little bit older that helped define the woman she would eventually become. When, when, when I was about uh, 12 years old, the government took me and they put my sisters, I have, uh, there's three, uh, three of us, and, and put, the, put us in the orphanage. And then when I was 19, um, uh, I had to get out and get a job, so that was my first job at, uh, at St. Paul's Hospital. And I worked there for, for three or four years, and then I met my husband there. After meeting at the hospital in Vancouver, the two moved to Port Alberni and eventually got married. A few years later, the couple decided to move back home to the city. And uh, then we uh, we decided to to go move to Vancouver, and my husband got a husband um, a job there. And then I took up a, uh, as a as a hobby. I took up oil painting, and uh, I liked the art. And uh, so that was my, my relaxation was painting. In fact, her son Larry shared with me that some of her fondest memories include going to Stanley Park with her friends and taking the day to paint the beautiful sights of Vancouver's most iconic park. And she ended up selling many of her paintings in the 1980s, so there's a chance the painting at your favorite coffee shop could be a Helen Watson original. Helen is currently in a long-term care home, and though her birthday passed on Saturday, 
It was celebrated without her family by her side for the first time in decades because the facility won't let anyone in. No, they can't. And I'm sorry about that. They stand outside the fence and look up, but I can't see very well. One eye is, uh, is uh, face double and it's closed up on me. And my other eye is slowly going away, I think. <laughs> but as you can hear, she remains in good spirits. It's an inspiration and hopefully a reminder that COVID-19 is temporary. As Helen survived the Spanish flu and is still surviving COVID-19, we ought to remember that there is an abundance of life that we have to live and many more birthdays we have to celebrate. For now, we must think of people like Helen, who depend on the rest of society to follow the rules so that she can stay safe and healthy. The last thing I want and the last thing I think you would want is for Helen to have to spend her next birthday separated from her family yet again. And after all these years, she does remind you, don't waste time. They say, what's your secret? I says, my secret is just keep busy. <laughs> and that's about it. <laughs> well, she's done a very good job, hasn't she? That's Helen Watson speaking to our John Jang. Helen is 105 years old. Can you imagine the things that Helen has seen in her life? The Spanish flu, World War II, the Great, like the Depression, like you name it. Helen has seen it and she is taking the COVID-19 pandemic in stride as well. She's a great example to all of us out there. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to get a check-in, as we often do, with what's going on overseas. Shane Woodford joins us now, freelance reporter in Denmark, of course, former CKNW reporter. And boy, there is a lot to talk about. Good morning, Shane. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. Um, let's talk about some of the stories out of Europe this morning, because we're, we're hearing that the World Health Organization says some of the, the largest COVID-19 deaths that they have seen are coming now from Europe. Yeah, uh, there are a lot of deaths in Europe. Uh, the good news is the second COVID wave, the infection wave, seems to be receding somewhat. Uh, a week or two ago here, it wouldn't be uncommon to check the numbers and see just, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve 10, 11, 12 EU countries setting new daily infection uh, rates, uh, records, I should say. But uh, now that infection wave seems to be receding. But deaths is a laggard stat. Infections go up a couple of weeks later, you start to see deaths rise. And that's what's happening here. While infection numbers are steadily dropping in most European countries. We're now seeing deaths that are rising rapidly. Italy, for example, has had a couple of days skirting very, very, very close to the number of deaths in its first wave peak back in the spring. Uh, yesterday, countries like Germany and Poland saw their deadliest days yet in the pandemic, and on it goes. What about the Scandinavian countries then? How is, how's Denmark doing? Uh, Denmark is still not in a good place. We are routinely seeing infections over the 1,000 daily mark. Um, they're not record-breaking, uh, but they're still not receding at a level that we would like to see. But a week ago, we actually had health officials say, hey, listen, the projections are looking good. Uh, we've got a really positive feeling about this. And about four days later, um, they came back in and said, well, listen, infections are rising. Uh, Copenhagen's a problem. We've got other little pocket issues across the country. Uh, so it's kind of, I don't want to say treading water. It's not doing, it's not doing like record-breakingly bad, 
Uh, but it's also not going down in the rate I think people would like to see. Let's talk about what's happening in Sweden as well, because Sweden got so much attention in the early part of this pandemic for not doing, you know, what other countries in the rest of the world seem to be doing. But now it, they feel, I th- it feels like they're catching up. Yeah, Sweden, the wheels have totally fallen off. Last time you and I talked about this, they had posted their highest ever uh, daily infection record, which was roughly double what they had back in the spring. That was about, uh, if I remember, about 3,600 infections a week or two ago, Simi. Now they're seeing infections in the five, six, seven thousand per day. Uh, last Sunday, uh, the Swedish Prime Minister uh, addressed the nation on television and literally said, listen, the situation is grim. Uh, he pled with Swedes to abide by restrictions that are now pretty much adopted in every region of Sweden, the same restrictions uh, the Swedes were scoffing at back in the spring and through much of the summer. Uh, and he said uh, the choice of Swedish people now will literally determine who is with us at Christmas and who is not. I was talking to uh, a friend and a contact of mine in Stockholm, and he just described the situation there on the ground as being very, very grim. Their numbers are going through the roof. Ooh, that's awful. Uh, now, getting back to Denmark here as well, I understand there's been a lot of testing going on. Yeah, <laughs> Uh, they have, uh, in the northern part of Jutland, where they locked down those seven municipalities due to the coronavirus infected mink, uh, the good news to me is that they've now kind of wound down those lockdowns. Uh, they've actually said, the the Scandinavian version of the CDC here, the Staten Serum Institute, has said that the, uh, the coronavirus strain that had everybody really spooked that caused the lockdown, the Cluster 5, uh, is now extinct. They haven't had a positive case of that since September 15th. They figure it's dead. Uh, that said, they are really ramping up testing in two zones, northern Jutland, where they have 58% of the people there tested, and they're working to get the other 42%. And there's another pocket in Jutland where they're having coronavirus uh, mink-related infections popping up again, not the cluster five, but they're still seeing some kind of coronavirus popping from mink to human. And they're now looking to literally test every single person in those right. two municipalities as well. So we're looking at a couple hundred thousand people. And then, of course, you know, the dead mink are literally oh. rising from the grave. So that's a problem, too. That was going to be my next question, because, like, we have to talk about that, right? Because that headline yeah. is all over the world about zombie mink rising from the grave. Yeah. What is going on? Yeah. Okay, so um, it is a little funny and it is a little sad. The Danish government just cannot seem to get this mink situation uh, done right. They had the illegal order to call them all. That has put the government very much on its back foot. Uh, They did have a lot of dead mink to deal with. So what they did to me is they had millions of mink, and they decided to go into this one part of Denmark, unfortunately very near a popular swimming lake, and they decided to have mass graves for these mink. Now, they didn't consult that local municipality, so this mm. is a problem. It's near a very popular swimming lake. Oh, man. They're none too happy. There's concerns about the groundwater. And then they did not bury them deep enough. So they buried them about three feet. And what happened oh. is all of these millions of mink began to decompose. They began to bloat with gases and literally were pushed out of the earth. Uh, much to the horror of anybody who happened no to be kidding. nearby. Can you imagine? So that, Can you just, yeah, unbelievable. Oh. Oh. Yeah, so now there is very much uh, a health and safety issue and a variety of concerns on a number of levels that has the Danish government just scrambling here. They, I mean, they they must be in a bit of a crisis mode though, Shane, because like even that one mink story that you just told me about, the rest of the world is looking at that in horror and now everybody's talking about, you know, the government of Denmark. Yeah, they've been scrambling for weeks here. So, I mean, matter of fact, uh, Meta Fredrickson, who's the prime minister here, 
uh, in what I think is pretty blatant PR move, uh, went on her Facebook and her Instagram and said, listen, I'm going to go and visit some Ming farms, uh, that kind of thing. But they are very much in trouble on this. It's cost them uh, their agriculture minister, Mullins Jensen, had to resign. Uh, and it just seems like every time they try and do something, it just blows up in their face. This, of course, being the latest. But politically speaking, there is, you know, obviously everyone involved with the mink industry here, uh, as well as, you know, certain sections are already sort of sections of Jutland and areas like that, which wouldn't lean much towards the left anyway, uh, sort of rural areas are mm-hmm. very, very, very much up in arms. And uh, we had a situation last weekend where, uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of farmers jumped in their tractors. You know, we're talking five or six hundred tractors, and they wound their way through the streets of Denmark's two largest cities, totally snarling traffic, waving signs, honking, and all, you know, basically telling the government that they've aired a lot of signs saying things like, you must resign, that kind of stuff. So there's a very right. palpable anger here about that. No kidding. Okay, thank you so much for the update, Shane. One more thing, Simi, before yep. I go, because I know vaccinations are a big issue uh, on your side of the pond. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in Denmark, we're going to find out in about three hours exactly how the country plans to vaccinate its population. So that'll be fairly interesting. All right. I guess we'll be talking to you again. Thanks, Shane. Cheers. Shane Woodford, freelancer in Denmark, former CKNW reporter, talking about what is going on over there. I think, yes, we will be closely watching what any country's vaccination plans are and compare them to what we've got or will be getting, we hope, here in Canada. But man, what a mess. That whole mink story, like that is, those are not the headlines I'm sure the government in Denmark want to see all over the world with everybody talking about what's going on there. It's just horrific. Oh. This is Mornings with Simi. So that song, Fernando by ABBA, was my mother's favorite absolute song. She just loved it, loved it, loved it. I heard it a million times when I was growing up. And the reason why we're talking about that today is because we heard this week that a number of old Canadian bills are no longer going to have legal tender status as of January the 1st. And because of my mother... I have a whole bunch of these bills. I have a bunch of the very old, you know, the $1 bills. These are from the 80s. I have $2 bills. And when was the last time you saw a $2 bill? I've got a bunch of those too. And I always, every once in a while, kind of look at them and think, oh, these are kind of cool to have. But they're not going to be anything. They're not going to be worth anything coming up on January the 1st. Now, I'm sure you're thinking, well, wait a minute. I've got some of those lying around too. Here's what you need to know. Have a listen to this report by Nikki Reitmeyer. Remember the old Canadian $2 bill or the $1 bill? Of course, the Canadian $2 bill was brown, and you may recall it having a picture of the Queen on one side and a pair of Robins on the back side. The $1 bill you may remember as being green and black, with again Queen Elizabeth II on one side, and when you flipped it over, you'd see Parliament Hill. Those two bills haven't been printed for a while. They stopped printing the $1 bill in 1989 when they introduced the loony, and they stopped printing the $2 bill in 1996 when they introduced the toonie. However, they are still considered legal tender, but not for much longer. As of January 1st, 2021, those two bills will have their legal tender status removed. They're not the only ones on the chopping block. The 25, 
$500, and $1,000 banknotes will also lose their legal tender status as of January 1st, 2021. So let's take a moment now to check out some of those other, more rare Canadian bills that you may not be as familiar with. We'll start with the $25 bill. Have you ever seen one of these before? It was issued only in 1935 to commemorate the Silver Jubilee of King George V. In today's dollars, if you consider inflation, a $25 bill in 1935 would be worth 470 bucks. The $25 bill was withdrawn from circulation in 1937. Then there is the $500 bill. It was printed in 1911, 1925, and 1935. It was withdrawn from circulation in 1938. If you do have one of these bills stored away somewhere in your home, it could be worth a lot of money. Featuring an image of Queen Mary, there are only three 1911 bills still known to exist. One of them sold at auction about 10 years ago for nearly $420,000. And then there is the $1,000 bill. This one's pink in color, and they stopped circulating it in the year 2000 on the recommendation of the RCMP and the Solicitor General. Why? Because large denomination bills make it easier for organized crime groups to move large quantities of money around. Now all of these bills have been withdrawn from circulation and they will all soon lose their legal tender status. But that absolutely does not make them worthless. Credit cards, debit cards, checks, contactless payment using your phone, those aren't legal tender, but they are still all accepted at the discretion of the business where you're shopping. And the same will still be true for $1, $2, $25, $500, or $1,000 bills. Plus, if you want, you can take any of these bills that you may have to your bank or send them to the Bank of Canada. They can be redeemed for their face value. And of course, there's no harm in keeping them either. Why not hang on to them as a souvenir from Canadian history? For 980 CKNW, I'm Nikki Wright-Meyer. Well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hold on to them as a souvenir, of course, because they, they were my mom's. They were in her little change purse. Uh, and I just thought, well, I'm never going to get rid of these, even if they aren't worth anything anymore. We have Nikki Reitmeyer with us. Hey, Nikki, I got so excited there at the beginning <laughs> thinking about, <laughs> I've got these bills. Do you have any of these bills lying around? Yeah, it was funny that you, I loved that story because at my house too, we have a bunch of the $2 bills, I shouldn't say a bunch, but we have a few of the $2 bills and I think the $1 bills as well. My mom was just saving them and holding them on. I think she thought that my brother one day would start a money collection. He he never did, but she has them <laughs> Such a mom thing to do. Yeah. I know, isn't it? But I bet there's lots of people out there who have the $2 bills for sure. Some, yeah. Certainly the $1 bills. I wonder if any of our listeners have any of these more rare bills though, the $25 bill, the, the $5 $500 bill, the $1,000 bill. If you do, call our buzz line and let us know about your cool, weird currency that you're holding on to. We'd love to hear about it. Oh, I really would. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com. Thanks, Nikki. This is Mornings with Simi. We're not going to do another repatriation. People should be thinking twice whether they have, you know, insurance coverage. That's Foreign Affairs Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne talking about the issue of snowbirds heading down to the States and potentially what might happen 
if they need to or have to come back home. You heard him say it. We're not going to do another assistance of getting people back home like they did in the spring. We know in a normal year, more than 300,000 Canadians head south every winter. And despite the pandemic, there are still snowbirds who are doing that this year. So joining us now to talk more about this is Evan Rakowski, who's a spokesperson for the Canadian Snowbirds Association. Evan, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me on. Now, do you know of snowbirds who are still heading south this year? Uh, we, we do. I, I have spoken with a, a number of our members uh, who have gotten into contact with me, uh, and they have made the journey. Some are planning to make the journey. Uh, in terms of our membership total, we have approximately 110,000 members across Canada, about 30%, maybe even less than that, given the surging case numbers stateside, uh, will probably end up uh, heading down south this season. Okay, and what is their rationale for doing so? So there, there's a, a number of different reasons. I mean, primarily, again, it, it's something that's habitual for them. You know, this is something that they've been doing for 10, 20, even 30 years. So in from their perspective, you know, many believe, hey, you know, I can socially distance, I can wear a mask, I can do all of these or implement all of these health and safety protocols when I'm down in Florida, just as I would when I'm, you know, back home in Canada. So that, that's, that's how they're seeing it from their perspective. Other reasons we're hearing is, you know, some uh, property owners in the U.S., they may have a home insurance policy that requires them to be physically present in their U.S. property for a certain portion of their policy period. Mm -hmm. So because of that, there might be an insurance rationale for them to head down there, you know, for maybe a month or two months and then head back to Canada, quarantine, and then just they've met the obligations of their home insurance policy down south. Can they still get medical insurance, though, by going down there? So more and more insurance companies are now offering COVID-19 related coverage. Uh, From our perspective, obviously health and safety have to be the the first priority, but if snowbirds do choose to head south, they need to purchase travel medical insurance with that COVID-19 protection. What we are noticing as well is some certain providers are capping the amount of coverage that they're providing for COVID-19. So even though the policy might have an overall health benefit of two to five million dollars, some providers are capping anything COVID-19 related to about two hundred thousand dollars Canadian. Now, in, in my in my uh, in my humble opinion, that really is not sufficient or adequate yeah. uh, for coverage in the U.S. That really is not going to go very far if you do end up contracting the virus and you need to be hospitalized down south. So, if people do choose to go down there, they need to purchase a, a coverage plan, uh, a travel insurance policy that goes above and beyond that $200,000. Yeah, what is your advice to them at this time? Because you know what's going to happen, Evan. If something does go wrong, they're going to be calling the association to get help to come back home. I mean, most of them, in, in terms of the, the repatriation flights, again, mo- most of our members weren't, you know, part and parcel of that repa- repatriation process, uh, simply because, again, if, if they're not using their Canadian vehicles, they have U.S. vehicles that then they drive back up into Canada. So it, that, that isn't such an issue from that perspective. But, again, our advice is, you know, health and safety absolutely need to be the priority. If they do need to travel, again, they need to be mindful of the, the CDC, the state and local level health protocols, the quarantine requirements, and they absolutely need to purchase adequate travel health insurance prior to their departures. Okay, so what then, do you, how are they getting down there? Like, what is the process if somebody really does want to do that? Because the land borders are, you know, it's difficult to cross the land border. So, so the land border has been closed since March. 
and just recently that was extended to December 21st of this year. Likely we're going to see that land border closure restriction to non-essential travel extended well into 2021. So if snowbirds do want to travel down south, the only real means they have is by flying into the U.S. So I've heard of a variety of, of different circumstances or ways in which members are doing this. Some are taking helicopters from Canada to the U.S. and having their vehicles shipped to a neighboring U.S. border state, and then they're driving their Canadian vehicles down south. Some have U.S. vehicles down south, so they're just getting on a, on a plane to Florida or to Arizona or to California, and then they're, they're basically arriving at their U.S. destination, and then they're uh, basically going to stay there, you know, adhere to all of the health and safety protocols, and then return back to Canada in the spring. Right. I guess for, for some people, it's just, it's just the allure too much. Is the habit too much? I, I, it's definitely much more habitual, right? We're, we're not talking about people spending, you know, two weeks in, in Disney World. This is people that are spending up to six months in the U.S. So it's much more of a lifestyle than it is, you know, a vacation or, or a tourist uh, reason. But I would, I would just emphasize that the vast majority of our membership have chosen not to go this season. You know, obviously they see the surging number of COVID cases. You know, obviously there's concerns with hospital capacity, uh, hospitalization rates, and ICU mm-hmm. rates as well and they've made the decision not to travel this season. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Like, okay, yeah, you can get some medical insurance, but unfortunately, if you do get sick, that doesn't mean the hospital is going to have room for you with what's going on down there. But that That is true as well. And obviously, that that's something that people would need to be mindful of as well. You know, we, we supply our members with the necessary resources, send them to the, the websites that they can see. Obviously, numbers are not going to be the same across the board, but we do provide them with the necessary information that they would need in order to make an informed decision on whether or not it makes sense for them to travel this year. Okay, what is your advice then, Evan, when a snowbird calls you up and says, listen, we're thinking about doing this, what do you tell them? I would say, take, take, you know, you'd have to take into consideration a number of different factors. Obviously, age, you know, if you do have any pre-existing conditions, what the COVID situation looks in their particular locality. Again, all of those things have to be taken into consideration. I would say the, the vast majority of individuals, just like the vast majority of our members, the, the best decision would be, you know, just forego this season and then look to, you know, possibly 2021, 2022 uh, for the, the next time that they're actually going to uh, leave for their U.S. home. All right. Well, Evan, thanks so much for talking to us this morning. Much appreciated. Thank you. That's Evan Rakowski, who's a spokesperson for the Canadian Snowbirds Association. Surprisingly so, there are still plenty of snowbirds who are going to head down to the States or Mexico even uh, for the winter. What they're doing to get around the rules is they're shipping their RVs down there and then they're flying to go and get their RVs because, you know, you can still fly. You can't necessarily cross the land border. Uh, But it just, it kind of boggles the mind when you think about what's happening down in the States, right? Why would you do this? So I got this email from Dan and Dan says, we own and operate Baja Amigos RV Caravan Tours. They offer RV tours to snowbirds every winter in Mexico. He said, for the first time in 15 years, we are home for the winter. He said the U.S. and Mexico have the same restrictions on non-essential RV travel as Canada, and we have canceled almost all our tours. He said, we'll see about February 2021. He said, we know that many Canadian RV snowbirds have shipped their RVs south and then flown across to meet them in the U.S. And he said, given that COVID-19 is raging in both the U.S. and Mexico, Dan says, we believe this is foolish. Even with robust travel insurance, he said, anyone infected will not 
be flown home, and they may not have a hospital bed down there to go to. We have shoveled snow, Dan said, for the first time in years. Way better than getting sick and possibly dying. He said typically most snowbirds are 65 plus with underlying health conditions. He said we do expect next season to be one of our best. Dan, I applaud that attitude, right? It's just one year. You can do things differently for one year rather than risking everything right to head down there. But as he said, he knows lots of snowbirds who are still doing that. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, one of the reasons why we have all these heightened concerns about the COVID-19 numbers is because the numbers have also been going up in other parts of the province. It's not just Metro Vancouver that's seeing this. It's, you know, more cases on Vancouver Island, more cases in Northern Health. And that's where the concern really lies, because those areas don't have the resources that Metro Vancouver has. You see an increasing number of cases there. There's not an unlimited amount of hospital space for people to go to. So obviously, you really want to prevent those cases from happening. And in particular, of course, this happens in remote communities uh, that are Indigenous as well. And right now there's a positive case at a First Nation community on Haida Gwaii, two cases at a community in Tofino. So that second wave is having an impact. Joining us now to talk about the concerns surrounding this is Dr. Shannon McDonald, the Acting Chief Medical Officer for BC's First Nations Health Authority. Dr. McDonald, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Happy to be here. I thought this is so important for us to talk about because the communities have done so much to try to stay isolated and keep COVID-19 out. But what happened? I think you have to be um, understanding that those communities often don't have the ability uh, to have all of the resources they need in the community. People have to go out to shop. You mentioned healthcare. People go out for healthcare appointments. People visit with families. Uh, as much as we're discouraging that now, there have been uh, social events or cultural events that bring people together. It's very, very challenging for a community, even on a virtual lockdown, uh, to actually maintain that as absolute. Um, life goes on. And so as careful as communities are being, um, it only takes one person yeah. uh, to have... Uh, in a, a part of a transmission activity outside of the community to bring it home to cause problems. And we know, I mean, you talked about a couple of different uh, community cases, and, and we have had increasing numbers of cases, but communities have been amazing in their response and their partnership with health authorities and with us mm-hmm. um, to shut it down. So how are they doing that then? How are they dealing with these cases? Well, the individual cases are dealt with on First Nations just like they are everywhere else. If you have a positive case, people are asked to self-isolate. If they can't do that in their community, which sometimes happens if they live in a household with lots of people, it's very difficult to do. So the First Nations Health Authority has supported individuals to self-isolate away from the home and sometimes away from the community. Uh, For others who are able to self-isolate at home, Communities have supported them with food delivery, medication delivery, and helped support them in any other way they might need for the period of that isolation. 
Schools, of course, are always a concern for everyone. So there's a um, a real intensity about monitoring cases in schools and maintaining safety for children in schools. And some communities have even chosen to gather collectively to go out um, as sort of one big van mm-hmm. uh, to buy groceries and then bring them back to the community for distribution. So there's lots of different ways that it's being handled. Um, but I think one of the things that's unique about First Nations is their collective effort. Um, urban populations may not even know who their neighbor is. Um, and the tendency to care for us as individuals tends to be our own family and and close circle of friends, where in a First Nations community, there's a a very strong sense of everyone working together um, to to bring things, any kind of transmission to a close and to protect the people who haven't become ill. And do you think that is working then? Is that message getting out? Well, when we look at, I I have partners across the country who work in First Nations communities, and and our communities have by far um, uh, had better outcomes than some of our other First Nations communities on the prairies. But there is no universal, um, and situations are different everywhere. So I'm very proud and, and very happy to work with communities on their responses and um, get really excited when I see people from all generations and all uh, areas of the community come together to make this happen. Now, I've noticed that as well, like some of the heartwarming stories about people really pitching in to get this together. I almost feel like all communities, including the big cities, can learn something from the way people are pitching in for this. I would agree. Um, It's something that, while not unique, uh, to First Nations is certainly a, an effective way um, to build strength and resiliency in a community. So are the checks that, like the checks still in place then? So you, ha- you really you have to check in before you go into the community. You have to have a reason for being there, I guess. <laughs> Most of the time. I live on Saved First Nation on Vancouver Island, and there is a, a sort of a gate um, at the... D- the uh, entrance to the community that suggests that only people who live there or essential services should be there on weekends. Those are manned gates. And some of the communities actually have uh, public health security um, 24-7, depending on the situation. And it's a little harder to get into this community. You have to kind of make an effort. Um, But in many communities, there's a highway running through and people might be uh, inclined to just pull in um, and, and that's being discouraged. Okay, so then what is your advice to everybody in regards to this, Dr. McDonald? I mean, this is not the time for us to be driving around, right, or going for a drive to see what's going on out there. No, exactly. And, and I think the strongest message for us has been the most difficult one for communities, and that is to stay home and not gather this time of year with holidays, with uh, winter ceremonies that many of our communities participate in culturally, uh, funerals, weddings, other things. Right now is not the time uh, to have people come into the community to gather whatever the celebration may be, um, that that we really have to delay those events until the vaccine is here and we're all able to 
uh, gather together again. And boy, will that be a celebration. I'll bet it will be everywhere. Has that part of the message, though, been a little more challenging to get out? Like, how are some communities dealing with the people who just don't want to listen to the rules? It is very difficult. And and at this point, it's something that we're seeing in the non-Indigenous community as well, the resistance to some of the public health orders. People don't want to have their life interrupted. Um, But the most severe interruption is the loss of life. And our our communities are very conscious, Mm -hmm. especially of the importance of elders, our knowledge keepers, our language holders. And uh, so asking people to care for their family um, as opposed to just taking care of themselves is is pretty important. Dr. McDonald, thank you for your time this morning. You're very welcome, Cindy. Take care. You too. That's Dr. Shannon McDonald, the Acting Chief Medical Officer for BC's First Nations Health Authority. This, of course, is an incredibly challenging time as well for Indigenous communities around the province. So many of them are in remote locations. They are fairly isolated. And yet, despite the efforts they are making and have been making, they are still seeing that second wave creep into those communities. So they're having to double down, work even harder to keep it up. They just don't have the resources if they get too many cases up there. This is Mornings with Simi. We all have pet peeves of what we see happening out there on the roads, right? And our mares are no different. In these winter months, when it's so dark outside, so dreary, so rainy, it's even more important to make sure that we are careful out there, not just for drivers, but for pedestrians as well. Coquitlam Mayor Richard Stewart talked to our Nikki Reitmeyer about this awful fright that he had. He really got scared when he was driving home from work last Friday, and he wants his experience to serve as a reminder to everyone to be careful out there well of course it's getting dark earlier and i was driving uh, home from the office and uh, suddenly i had to swerve out of my lane because 10 15 feet in front of me was a jogger i hadn't seen him until that moment he was wearing uh, gray just blended in so well into the background of a rainy early evening that if i hadn't seen his face at that moment if i'd glanced away for a second it would have been different uh, if there had been oncoming traffic i would have had no choice and it just it frustrates me we see it every day where we see people that are, are dressed warmly and bundled up and dressed so that no one can see them under some circumstances uh, all in black all in gray and it uh, is incredibly dangerous it we ask pedestrians to please bright you know brighten up try don't try to blend in yeah and I, you know i think people tend to forget at this time of year that it does get darker sooner. So if you're heading out for a jog or a walk or a bike ride while it's still light in the afternoon, it may suddenly be very dark by the time that you're on your way back home again. Exactly. There, there's that. You've got to perceive as well what does the driver see because quite often you think the road is all lit up, but it's lit up with automobile headlights coming at you from both directions and all the motorists can see is the the oncoming traffic and their headlights. In between those headlights, we don't see as well because the headlights are so bright. And uh, and occasionally you'll see a headlight go off and you'll realize there's someone, there's something there, but you only see it because the headlight has been obscured for a half a second by a pedestrian. Mm, And of course, the pedestrian gets quite the fright, but as a driver, I think we've all had that experience where you have a near miss and it just... It just shakes you to your core. It just rattles you. 
Absolutely. You pull over to the side of the road and you, you, you might be 20 minutes before you're able to put it in gear and, and get going again. I know of one instance where a co-worker was almost killed in a crosswalk simply because the light signal had left her crossing in the blind spot of a left-turning vehicle. You know, she was dressed with lots of color, and so I, and, but it was early evening and a rainy day, and, and the blind spot in the vehicle just happened to, to line up. So we, you know, we ask motorists to pay particular attention these days, but we also ask pedestrians, don't assume the motorist sees you. Mm-hmm. And for goodness sakes, make sure you give the motorist the best chance of seeing you by dressing more brightly, by putting the reflector on, by carrying a light if necessary. Black umbrellas are horrible. Uh, you know, these are all realities that I think as pedestrians, we have to take into account. Yeah, very true. Now, I understand that the city has been doing some projects to help make the roadways a little bit safer for both motorists and pedestrians. We, yeah, actually, here in Coquitlam, we've converted all of our streetlights uh, to LED, which provides a whole, a whole different range of lighting uh, safety uh, associated with our residential streets, our, our busy arterial streets. And we've also added, you know, multi-use paths, the MUPS that allow cyclists to get off the road and into a a more dedicated path. Things like rectangular flashing beacons at crosswalks that allow the motorists will know there's someone in the crosswalk, even if they don't see the, the person. A lot of this depends on the pedestrian actually dressing to be seen, dressing to be noticed, because the most dangerous time for for a pedestrian is when they have to step off the sidewalk onto a crosswalk when they decide to cross mid-block we urge them not to and we urge them to put their phone in the pocket and leave it there while they're walking uh, because we see all too often a pedestrian that is oblivious to the traffic around him or her as uh, they walk down the street. You absolutely read my mind. I was just going to say, don't get me started on people who have their phone in their hand while they're crossing the street, staring at their phone instead of looking left and right to see if there's any cars coming. Yeah, my father had a poem for that. Uh, You know, I get it. You have the right of way. You're in a crosswalk. But my father would repeat this to us until, until we could repeat it back. He was right, he was right, he said all along, but he's just as dead as if he'd been wrong. (laughs) Good words of wisdom. Hey, well, Mayor Stewart, it was such a pleasure chatting with you, and thanks for for sharing an important message with us, which, of course, is pedestrian safety and motorist safety, particularly at this time of year. So thank you again. No, absolutely. We want all of our pedestrians to arrive arrive home safely. And in in the COVID environment, keep your distance from those cars. Excellent advice there. If you've got a pet peeve you've been seeing out there on the roads, feel free to share it with me, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, there's an economic update coming from the federal government next week. And one of the things we expect to hear about in there is their plans around child care, potentially a national type of child care system. And at this point, you know, a policy that they really want to follow through on would probably be a good step forward. So for years now, and we have talked about this, and boy, have we ever talked about this, the criticism has always been, oh, it would cost too much. But a Canadian economist has just done a report on this and has come to a different conclusion on that. Jim Stanford is with us, an economist and the founder of the Progressive Economics Forum. Jim, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Timmy. Glad to be here. Tell me about this report that you did. 
we put some broad numbers on the different economic benefits that would flow from a national child care program. And uh, they'd be felt in, in many different ways. First of all, there'd be lots of jobs created in the program itself, of course. We estimate around 200,000 over 10 years working in the child care centres. Um, and then there's all kinds of industries like uh, construction, for example, that would feed into child care. We estimate over 8,000 jobs in the construction sector, building and retrofitting child care facilities. The really big one is um, it, uh, an uh, affordable child care program would allow more parents, especially women, obviously, uh, to join the labor market and work uh, full-time hours instead of part-time hours. Okay, and how... Uh, we estimate over 700,000 gains uh, that way. Okay, so how would all of this tie into COVID-19 recovery? Well, you know that uh, women have been affected more by the uh, layoffs uh, associated with the pandemic than men. Uh, It's often called a she-session rather than a recession. Uh, So part of uh, the benefit of childcare will be facilitating women getting back to work, um, uh, rejoining the labor market. Um, also, I mean, we are going to be in a situation for three or four or five years, by my estimate, where um, we, we are experiencing widespread unemployment or underemployment. So we really need every job uh, we can get. So to give a boost to the overall economy and women's employment in particular, uh, the timing for this program couldn't be better. So how would that work then, Jim? Because one of the big concerns people always have is the cost, the cost. How much yes. would this cost? Yeah, well, it is going to be expensive, no doubt about it. A, a national child care program, uh, you'd be having spaces for probably over a million preschool kids who don't have access to care today. Uh, likely in excess of $10 billion a year cost once it's fully rolled out. But um, the point of our study was to show that the uh, tax revenues generated by all of that new work, potentially up to a million new jobs when you count all of those channels of benefits, would actually create more money for government than they're paying for the child care program. So in that regard, it ends up being a money maker for government. Uh, total government revenues, we estimate, would increase by 17 to $29 billion a year once the program was fully rolled out. And that's much more than the cost of providing the child care service uh, in the first place. That's consistent with other studies that have also found child care programs actually generate more money for government than they cost. I'm fascinated by this discussion, Jim, because, you know, 10 years ago when I started in this business in radio, you know, if we talked about child care, we'd get the phone calls from people saying, oh, it's not a business thing. It costs too much money. But somewhere along the way, it changed. I don't know if it was a labor shortage or what happened, but you started to get businesses on board with the idea of providing, you know, more child care because to them, they need happy, productive employees. I, I think you're absolutely right, Simi. I think the attitudes have changed. Um, and we do see, even right now, our top business leaders in Canada saying, yes, government, you have to go ahead with this. And that's not always true when you're thinking of a big social program. Sometimes they're more concerned about cutting spending and taxes and so on. But on this one, everybody seems to be singing from the same uh, hymn book. And businesses recognize that they, first of all, they need uh, their their women employees. Um, uh, secondly, uh, the distractions and disruptions of trying to balance work life and home life uh, are interfering with the flow of work and productivity and happiness and so on. So uh, they're absolutely on board. So I think this is uh, another example, Simeon, think of the last uh, BC provincial election. Uh, You had all of the parties saying we need expanded childcare and every one of them across the whole political spectrum 
committed to a big uh, increase in child care funding and child care spaces. So right. uh, I think this is an idea whose time has come. So how do we do that, though? Like for the for a federal government, that is a huge undertaking. Do you start with pilot programs? Do you roll it out? Like what does the system even begin to look like? Yeah, I think we can do much more than pilot programs. We've got examples, uh, for example, in Quebec uh, of a full-out uh, universal system, and uh, and it has, in fact, benefited. They, they now have, in Quebec, the strongest uh, female employment rates of any province uh, in Canada. Uh, so we know that this works. Uh, I think the key details are going to be getting agreement between the federal and provincial governments, and you know that can always be tricky uh, in Canada. But as long as the feds come with a significant amount of money, which they seem to be indicating, we'll learn more on Monday in in, uh, Finance Minister Freeland's uh, update. Um, The provinces really, you know, they can't look a gift house horse in the mouth here. Uh, If the feds are paying a big share of the cost, the provinces are going to get many of the benefits. And it would make absolutely no sense for provinces uh, to stand in the way. I know uh, our government in B.C. here has, uh, has welcomed this. In other cases, think of a place like Ontario, Alberta. Uh, the, the governments have been, you know, more standoffish about it. So a key issue is, uh, are they going to get on board here and then we can make it happen? Right. We're talking about subsidizing this as well, right? Because you have to make it affordable for people. Oh, yeah, that's the whole point. So it's going to have to be a universal program where there's either no fee to parents or a very low fee to parents. In Quebec, for example, it's $8 a day. Uh, BC, of course, we've been uh, gradually rolling out a $10 a day program. So it's going to have to be in that range. There will be some user fee probably for the parents. It won't be completely free. But compared to what the parent, again, usually the mom, would make at a day's work, that cost will end up being trivial. And that's what's uh, important. Otherwise, you've got parents paying fourteen, fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars a month for childcare, which hardly makes it worth it in some cases to go out to work. That is so true. All right, Jim, thanks very much for talking to us about it. Thank you very much for having me. That's Jim Stanford, a Canadian economist, founder of the Progressive Economics Forum. Uh, they've just finished a report talking about a national child care system that they believe would eventually pay for itself with the tax revenues generated by allowing so many parents to get back into the workforce. Uh, and that would help out and pay for the system overall. It's an interesting idea. And I know a lot of parents out there would love, love, love help with child care. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.